And we are concluding our last series of the summer, Fish Tales. And we've had fun with the series, fun with the video. Uh, we like the idea of a series that focuses on biblical fish. Uh, and fish tales are fishing stories that are embellished. And we do enjoy listening to these accounts that fishermen tell. And so there is a component of fun to this series. But we really want to focus um, on is that fish tales, they are hard to believe. And the Bible is full of stories that are hard to believe. All of our fish tales in this series are outlandish. As we've highlighted some of these unbelievable stories, we want to remember that God asks us to believe the unbelievable, things that will make us wonder, is that really true? You see, the gospel is real. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. That actually happened, even if it's hard to believe. God asks us to believe the unbelievable. And God will also call us to do things that we never thought we would do. God asks things of us that stretch our faith. The unbelievable is a normal part of faith. Uh, the biblical fish stories that we've visited, they include the time that Peter caught a fish with a coin in its mouth and he used that to pay the temple tax. Um, we also visited the story of Jonah being swallowed by a huge fish, uh, the story of the resurrected Jesus telling the disciples to cast their net on the other side of the boat and they brought in this huge catch of fish. And these stories have focused on things like humility and the power of faith in the face of disillusionment or just fundamental faith reminders in following Jesus. Our last fish story takes us to the book of Exodus, to the beginning of the plagues on Egypt. The scripture for this morning is Exodus 7, verses 15 to 21. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, or you can just look it up on your phones. But one of our directives here at TFRC is transform lives, where we live visibly different lives because of our faith in Jesus. And this passage in Exodus provides a fundamental insight on how we are to live differently. It's the first plague that God has Moses cast on Egypt. It's turning the Nile River into blood. And then all the fish in the Nile, they die. And it sounds like another fish tale, a story that's hard to believe. Our scripture reader for this morning is Russ George. So Russ, please make your way on up to the podium. As he does, I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand and face the center of the room. We read from the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be central in our lives. It is the primary lens we use to determine how we live. And we stand because we believe this is the word of God. And so Russ, whenever you are ready, please read from Exodus chapter 7, verses 15 to 21. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink the, its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff 
and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. All the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Russ, thank you very much. You may be seated. Uh, Earlier this month, the uh, Mega Millions lotto jackpot climbed to over $1.5 billion. I don't know how many of you were following that. It was the largest Mega Million jackpot in its history. It generated a lot of interest and news coverage. Now, to win, you must pick the five correct numbers and then the Mega Ball number on top of that. And the odds of winning that jackpot uh, are over one in 300 million. Pretty long odds. Now, as the jackpot was climbing, I saw an article on cbsnews.com titled, Experts Share How to Increase Your Chances of Winning the Mega Millions Jackpot. Now, I thought that was interesting because how in the world could you increase your chances? Did the experts come up with some mathematical formula of picking numbers that increase your chances? I was intrigued. And so I clicked on the article and read it. And it was pretty disappointing. Uh, They had two tips. The experts had two tips. The first expert tip um, was to pick truly random numbers. Don't pick numbers associated with birthdays or anniversaries, those kinds of things. Because lots of people will do that. And then if you do win, your chances of having to share the jackpot increase. Well, okay, But that tip doesn't actually increase your chances of winning. It just decreases your chance of having to share the jackpot if you win. So that tip really wasn't any good. The other tip that the experts gave to increase your chances of winning, now be ready for this. You may want to write this down, okay? According to the experts, if you want to increase your chances of winning, buy more tickets. (laughs) That's it. That was the expert advice in the article, buy more tickets. Now, in their defense, that will increase your chances of winning, but it hardly qualifies as expert advice. So after I read the article, my conclusion was, there is no strategy for winning the lottery. It's all a matter of chance. There's no logic behind it. There's no reasoning behind it. It's all chance. Now, the passage we just read includes rotten fish. This is a fish tale because the fish in the Nile die. That's a lot of fish, by the way. And then, you know, turning the Nile River into blood, well, that's hard to believe. So this is a great biblical fish tale. Now, there have been a lot of theories that people uh, just scientifically try to explain this miracle. How can we scientifically explain how the Nile would turn to blood? And they come up with things like, well, maybe the Nile dried up to a small river flow, which would have made it, you know, muddy, and it would have looked like blood. 
Or maybe there was this red algae bloom that gave a red tide effect to make the Nile look red. Lots of people have spent lots of time trying to explain how this miracle happened. And many times we ask the wrong questions when we approach Scripture. In this case, we keep asking, well, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did this happen? Well, the Bible simply describes it as an act of God. How is the wrong question? A better question is, why did it happen? Meaning, why did God turn the Nile into blood? It was not by chance. God had a reason. There was logic behind it. It wasn't some random thing that God did. It was not by chance. So going back to the passage, uh, verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. And then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink, and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. This is the first plague of the Exodus story. You know the Exodus story. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Then God brings a plague. This happens 10 times. And here are the 10 plagues. You have the plague of blood, and then a plague of frogs, and then gnats, and flies, and livestock, and boils, and hail, and locusts, and darkness. And then the last plague is the plague of the firstborn. Again, people try to explain scientifically how these things happened. Let's just take the Bible at face value and say these were acts of God and ask a better question. Why did these plagues happen? And what I mean by that is why these 10 specific plagues? Why blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and firstborn? If God was simply showing his power, which he was doing in these plagues, there's a lot of things he could have done to show his power. You know, I would have suggested to God, God, I think what a really cool plague would be is just send like hundreds of lions into Egypt and just have them start killing and eating people. That would be a great plague. So God could have sent the plague of lions, or he could have sent a hurricane, or he could have sent earthquakes. There are all sorts of options that God had at his disposal to use as plagues to display his power to Egypt. So why did he pick these 10? Was it like the lottery and he just kind of picked things out of a hat? Oh, blood. Oh, frogs. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Was it random? You know, where God is like, well, I've got it down to either lions or locusts. Let's flip a coin and see what happens. No, I doubt that God picked these 10 specific plagues 
at random. There is probably a reason for them. And then, if there's a reason for these particular ten, is there any reason to the order that they come in? Why start with blood and end with the firstborn? Why not start with darkness and end with flies? Why go in this order? Now, I think these are better questions to ask. Now, um, we don't have time to go into the why or potential why of all 10 of these things. So we're going to limit ourselves to the plague in our fishtail. Why turn the Nile to blood at all? And why make that the first plague? Why start the plagues with turning the Nile into blood? Let's assume it's not random. There's a reason. What could it be? Well, this is not the first time in Exodus 7 that the Nile River plays a prominent role in the Exodus story. Eighty years before the Nile is turned into blood, something happened in the Nile River. All the way back to the first chapter of Exodus, the Nile is featured in the story. You see, Pharaoh was worried about how many Hebrews there were. They were becoming too numerous for Pharaoh's comfort. And so Pharaoh gave a command in all the land of Egypt. And you can read it in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. So 80 years before God had Moses turn the Nile to blood, there was a tragic genocide that occurred. Hebrew baby boys were just simply tossed into the Nile River. And the Nile provided this nice cover-up for the crime. And I'll get to the cover-up in a moment. But Pharaoh's order significantly impacted Moses' life. Because of the command of Pharaoh, Moses' parents hid him when he was born. And then when they could hide him no longer, they placed him in the Nile, but in a basket that floated to Pharaoh's daughter. And she recognized him as a Hebrew baby and raised him in Pharaoh's household. And so it worked out for Moses. The rest of the Hebrew baby boys all died in the Nile. It was a great tragedy that included a cover-up. Just going to put Pharaoh's order from Exodus 1 back on the screen. Pharaoh gave this order. Every Hebrew boy that is born is thrown into the Nile. Pharaoh had commanded infanticide, and if you're going to do something that horrible, that terrible, you really can't do it for everyone to see. You need to kind of keep it under wraps. Sort of like the Nazi Holocaust. When they killed millions of Jews, they tried to hide it from the world. Not many people knew about the Holocaust as it was happening. It was only after the war, when mass graves were found, that it became evident what the Nazis were doing. If you're going to do something that horrible, that terrible, you can't just do it in front of everybody. And so before Pharaoh's command to kill the baby boys... Well, the Nile might have looked something like this, something of this nature, okay? Egypt was the superpower of the day. 
Egypt was prosperous, peaceful. Life was good. And then comes the order of infanticide. Babies are thrown into the Nile. How would that impact the parents of those babies? Well, the parents would probably look something like this. They would be devastated. Their grief overwhelming. Losing a child is one of the worst experiences anyone can have. There is something unnatural about it. The Hebrews didn't just lose their children. Their children were taken from them. Their children were murdered. And their children weren't murdered by some rogue criminal, someone that they could take to the authorities for justice. Their children were murdered on the command of Pharaoh. There was no greater authority than Pharaoh. You don't challenge Pharaoh. And so this would be their lot for the rest of their lives. Their children murdered, and there was nothing they could do about it. The Nile was central to the life and prosperity of Egypt. You couldn't escape it. And so every time those parents saw the Nile or any other body of water, they would be reminded of their loss. This picture is a picture of the rest of their lives. And how did this impact the rest of Egypt? Hebrew baby boy after baby boy thrown into the Nile, parents grieving their loss and injustice. What did life look like for the rest of Egypt? It looked something like this. Baby after baby murdered and nothing changes. Egypt is still prosperous. It's still peaceful. Life was good. And when the babies are tossed into the water, the water covers up the crime. There is no evidence of infanticide. There are no mass baby graves. There's just the water. The water that gave them life and prosperity was the water that covered up one of the most horrific acts you can commit, throwing a baby into the water to drown. And from above the water, it looked like nothing had ever happened. And God says, I don't think so. God says, Pharaoh is going to know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh is not the final authority in the universe. God is. And so Pharaoh, you think that you can commit infanticide and not have to answer for it? Pharaoh, you think you can throw babies into the water and no one will ever know about it? You have another thing coming. Going back to the passage, verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. And Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff 
in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. God says, let me expose what you covered up. The Nile, which is your source of life and prosperity, you used it for unspeakable evil. It is full of blood. Your entire land is full of blood. This is what you've done. You have to answer for it. I am the Lord. Now, for the record, it was 80 years from the time of the infanticide to the Nile turning to blood. And for us, 80 years is a long time. But God is not slow in keeping his promises, as maybe we understand slowness. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to repent. But brothers and sisters, we never want to be in a position where God has to expose our sin. It is our nature to cover up and hide our sins. We've been doing it since Genesis 3. But it is never a good idea to cover up our sin. We even continue to do it as followers of Jesus. 1 Peter 2 says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's servants. Because of Jesus, we are not under the law of God. Because of Jesus, we are under the grace of God. But Peter tells us, don't use that freedom to cover up evil. And it's easy to excuse our sin and say that God will forgive me. But by saying God will forgive me, it means that we are in need of forgiveness, which implies that the evil in our lives needs to be uncovered. 1 John 1 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, we have certain behavior expectations as followers of Jesus, and there are moral standards that we are understood to follow. And all of us fail in living up to those standards. But we don't want anyone else to see our failure in sin. And so we hide and cover it up. And covering up and hiding our sin is one of the worst things that we can ever do. We are called to confess our sins. Confession is the key to freedom in Christ. Confession is the key to be free from guilt, to be free from trying to earn God's favor, to be free from the power of sin. Confession, more than anything else, should define us as followers of Jesus. One of my favorite things to say, many of you probably have heard me say it, I reserve the right to be wrong. Which is just my way of saying, I'm not perfect. I'm flawed, sinful human being. Now, the sin in my life is not okay. It is wrong. And guess what? Sometimes I'm wrong. My hope isn't in my perfection. It's in God's forgiveness. As it says in Romans chapter 4, 
Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Notice it says, whose sins are covered, not covered up. You see, covered up means we pretend that we didn't sin, where we deny it, we excuse it, we explain it away, we justify it. Well, that's not what this verse is talking about. It says whose sins are covered. When you and a friend go out to eat, and after eating, the bill comes, and your friend says, I got you covered. Well, that's a good place to be because your bill is paid. Now, that's not saying that you don't owe money to the restaurant for your food. You're not acting like you shouldn't pay. But because your friend paid the bill, you're covered. You're good. You can walk out of the restaurant as if you did pay. Now, you should thank your friend, be appreciative of your friend, honor your friend, but your friend paid because they're your friend. And confession, well, it's sort of the key to all of this. Our sins being covered means our sins have been confessed. We admit that what we did was wrong. And when we admit that what we did was wrong, well, that's what confession is. As it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Because of the cross, our transgressions are forgiven. Jesus paid because he is our savior. We can't repay that bill. So Jesus is to be honored, to be followed, to be obeyed, and we're good. We can live as if we did pay, but confession is the key. We confess our sins to God, but the Bible also says we need to confess our sins to each other. Now, that doesn't mean we should go around telling everybody everything we've done. Don't do that. But we need to find at least one other person who we can trust, relative, friend, counselor, brother, or sister in Christ, someone who is safe to share our sins with, who will keep confidence who will be understanding? Who will hold us accountable? Confess our sins to them. Reserve the right to be wrong. None of us are perfect. Confession is the key to freedom. Now, let's just return to our Exodus story and go to the last of the the first plague, Exodus 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The night of the plague of the firstborn. The angel of death comes and kills the firstborn of all of Egypt. And the Israelites were to take the blood of a lamb and put the blood on the door frames of their homes. And it was a sign, not just for the angel to pass over the house, but it was also a sign for them. You see, the Egyptians had hid their sin in the Nile River. They had covered it up. And so God turns the Nile River to blood as a sign of judgment. Now the last plague. 
God asks the Israelites to place blood on their doors. God's not going to bring the blood. God asks them to bring it. You see, it's not like the Israelites were innocent of sin. By putting blood on their door, yes, they were being obedient, but they were acknowledging God as Lord and themselves as sinful people. It was a sign to them as well. And so the Israelites applied the blood to their door as, again, acknowledging their sinfulness. And they're passed over for judgment. The Egyptians hid their sin, and judgment came to them. The Israelites acknowledged the Lord and their sin by putting blood on their doors, and death passes over them. The choice is ours. We can hide our sin. We can excuse it. We can deny it. We can explain it away and justify it. It's a bad place to be. Or we can confess our sins and simply say, no excuses. I was wrong when I did that. Simple, yes. Easy, no. I was wrong to do that. And experience the forgiveness and freedom it brings. The gospel changes everything. The blood of Jesus does not hide our sin. It redeems it. Here's what's amazing about God. That while God hates sin, he's fully aware of our sin. He's more aware of our sin than we are. And God doesn't forget our sin in the sense that he doesn't remember it. God forgets our sin in the sense that he doesn't count it against us. The blood of Jesus covering our sins doesn't mean they're hidden. It means they're paid for. They're covered. You're good. But then God, he'll go the extra mile and show off a little bit. Because he'll take our sin and use it to accomplish his purposes. Now, God obviously wants to use our obedience for his purposes. But God, like only God can, takes our shortcomings and uses those too. So as we strive to become more like Jesus, just remember, a key part of that is knowing when we're not. And find the freedom in confessing that. And receive God's blessing. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.